Hello and welcome to the Michael Collins House podcast. On this episode, we will be looking at the enigma of Arthur Griffith. Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith, though very different characters, shared a great deal of affection and respect for each other. Collins would go on to refer to Griffith as the father of us all. In his earlier years, Collins is said to have read the Sinn Féin founder's writings and little did the young Collins realise then that one day he would work alongside the man in the formation of a new Irish state. Indeed, while their lives would be intertwined, their deaths, just a few weeks apart in August of 1922, would join them forever in commemorations. Strangely, while Collins' star would continue to rise and even become revered in popular culture in more recent times, the enigma surrounding Griffith is that his memory is somewhat more subdued considering his impact on the foundation of the modern Irish state in which we live. Now, to discuss this today, we are joined by Colm Kenny from Dublin City University. Colm is a well-known journalist as well as a barrister and historian. He has a large back catalogue of articles, books uh, on culture and society. Publications include An Irish-American Odyssey from 2014 and Moments That Changed Us, Ireland, after 1973 from 2005. His most recent publication with Four Courts Press is, of course, the subject that he will discuss today, The Enigma of Arthur Griffith. It's a fantastic book and well worth a read, and yes, it is available in Michael Collins House gift shop. So, without further ado, I will hand you over to Dr. Colm Kenny. Enjoy. In November 1921, during negotiations in London for an Anglo-Irish treaty, Michael Collins privately described Arthur Griffith as a good man. Only I fear, said Collins, that Griffith is much the worse for the strain of a life spent in toil and trouble. Collins added that I reminded Griffith of how, when I was young, I thought of him as Ireland. This was a remarkable indication of Griffith's importance to his contemporaries. As the founder of Sinn Féin and editor of a series of influential advanced nationalist weekly papers since 1899, Griffith was the epitome of the nation to young bloods like Collins in 1921. It's a fact that's too easily forgotten, partly because Griffith's memory and the scope of his ambition for Ireland became a silent reproach to the new state and his role was quietly forgotten. Griffith was in London as the leader of a delegation of five people, sent by Doyle Aaron to negotiate an agreement for a treaty, an agreement that, if acceptable to Doyle Aaron and the House of Commons, would end the Irish War of Independence and create an Irish state. The five were specifically sent by the Doyle as plenipotentiaries, with that word literally meaning people who have full powers and they used those powers to agree with the British the text of a proposed treaty, a proposed treaty that both the Doyle and the House of Commons remained free to reject. Griffith was leader because de Valera had decided not to head the Irish delegation, even though Prime Minister Lloyd George headed the British delegates at the sessions in Downing Street. It was an awesome responsibility for Griffith. And in the end, he and Lloyd George would do what they felt they had to do and come to a compromise. Now, the long grind of treaty discussions in London dragged on from early October until December 1921. But Griffith and Collins sometimes took breaks. On one occasion, for example, they went to the Hammersmith Theatre with Kitty Kiernan and others for a revival 
of the Beggar's Opera. Griffith loved that production and saw it a number of times there. Collins worried in London that Griffith was in poor health, and Collins wrote that further burdens will do no more than grossly exaggerate his condition. Both men carried rosary beads in their pockets, never sure when talks might collapse and their lives be in danger. Within nine months, sadly, as we all know now, Griffith was to collapse and die in Dublin. When Griffith died in August 1922, it was said that Collins called him the father of us all. On the other side of the treaty split, Harry Boland said to have exclaimed to a friend, Damn it, Pat, hasn't Griffith made us all? So who was he, this man Griffith, whom James Stevens described as an enigma, but who in fact was very down to earth and no great puzzle? He loved swimming and playing chess and debating. He was a voracious reader and a collector of ballads. He even wrote some ballads himself, including a fairly bloodthirsty repost to the British slaughter of Muslim warriors in Africa. Griffith was born into a family of declining fortunes, his father suffering a long illness and leaving Griffith to care for his mother for many years. Griffith, the future founder of Sinn Féin, became a fully qualified printer, who even spent a couple of years in South Africa before returning and setting up the small weekly paper The United Irishman with the help of IRB Finance. This was a very lively publication, and among its eager readers was James Joyce. Its influence is evident in many ways in Joyce's works. Writers for the United Irishman included leading literary lights, as well as socialists such as Fred Ryan and the reactionary Oliver St. John Gogarty, who's perhaps better remembered as Buck Mulligan in Joyce's Ulysses. Griffith's role in providing a platform for women writers has recently been recognised. Griffith, as editor of the United Irishman, had a very small income. He lived with his mother in Summerhill in the heart of Dublin, near the notorious red light district known as Monto. He found Monto neither amusing nor attractive in any way. Indeed, he campaigned against prostitution that he saw destroying the lives of poor women. Griffith deferred his own marriage as he devoted himself to the Republican movement and looked after his widowed mother on his small income. Eventually, however, he married Maud Sheehan, whom he always called Molly. He wrote some romantic poems to her that still survive, safely stored in the National Library of Ireland. When Griffith and Molly decided to marry, a group of a couple of hundred people describing themselves as your fellow workers in the Sinn Féin movement and sympathisers outside that movement clubbed together to buy a house in Clontarf for the couple. Among the subscribers were two future presidents of Ireland, Douglas Hyde and Sean T. O'Kelly, as well as Constance Markovich, Chrissy Doyle, the socialist Fred Ryan, Anya Kant, George Russell, otherwise known as A.E., Cahill Brewer, Roger Casement and my own grandfather, Kevin J. Kenny, who helped Griffith to produce some issues of the annual Sinn Féin yearbook. Also subscribing to that house for the Griffiths was the Jewish gynaecologist Bethel Solomons. Griffith had a number of Jewish friends, including his solicitor Michael Noyek, and I've written elsewhere that certain anti-Semitic references in his earlier papers 
need to be offset by the content of later pieces that he wrote about Jews when he matured. He proclaimed a place for Jews in the new Irish state, and it's worth noting that the Irish Times in 1922 reported that when the Dublin Jewish Students' Union learnt with dismay of Griffith's death, its members sent a message to his widow, expressing their sincere and respectful sympathy. Arthur and Molly soon had a son, Nevin, born on the 7th of September 1911, and a daughter, Ita, born on the last day of 1912. He was at home minding the children when rebellion erupted in 1916. His wife, Molly, had gone to Cork to say goodbye to her sister, who was sailing for America. In the course of her statement to the Bureau of Military History in 1949, a statement that's disappointingly short on detail, especially in respect to personal matters, Griffith's widow recalled that on Easter Sunday 1916, he took the children out to go to some relatives and got only to the end of the road as he was informed of the fighting. He then went home and asked a neighbour to take the children so that he might go to see what was happening. A few days later, having made his will, Griffith was arrested. There were fears that he would be executed, because the British so closely associated the rising with his Sinn Féin. So he spoke with a priest, instructing the latter. If the worst happens, go to Maud and tell her I died thinking of her. He was interned without trial in England, first at Wandsworth and then at Reading Jail. Molly was allowed in to see him in Reading, where Oscar Wilde had also been imprisoned. Griffith asked Molly to get him a copy of Wilde's Ballad of Reading Jail, so she sent him a small edition that Griffith thereupon had signed by his fellow prisoners, and it survives in the National Library of Ireland. On his wedding anniversary he wrote to Molly from his cell in Reading, My love, we shall spend it happily hereafter. Tell Nevin to kiss you for me. He asked her if the children liked a certain picture that he had sent them, drawn by a fellow prisoner. Arthur Griffith got to spend too little time with his children between then and his death, being in jail for much of the period when he was not hiding from the British or tied up on royal business in Dublin and London. Photographs show him gripping his children's hands as he walks up the path to their home in Clontarf after his release from jail on one occasion. That home was subjected to frequent official raids, including by the notorious Black and Tans, and his children heard terrifying threats made against him. Molly later told a French journalist that when she went over to England near the end of the treaty negotiations, first thing I noticed in London was his hair turning white. She worried greatly about him. The day after the treaty was signed and the couple returned to Ireland, she told a friend, a pressman pounded the knocker of the door at 1am. I thought for a while it was the black and tans again. Molly grew dissatisfied with her husband's political involvement. She said, he's always been a fool, giving us all, others having the benefit. She appears to have wanted Arthur Griffith to draw back from politics, and he may have promised her that he would do so. Porrick Cullum, to whom Griffith's widow spoke for his biography of her husband, said that Arthur told her on the night the treaty was signed in London, you'll have your wish, in August I will be out of politics. But Griffith's prediction was to prove accurate, in a tragic way, of course, not as he foresaw it. 
The artist Sir John Lavery painted Griffith's portrait in London during the treaty negotiations. And there's nothing to support Yeats's suggestion that Griffith stirs in historical in hysterical pride from that canvas. Today it hangs in the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin. Griffith didn't push himself forward and always saw others as better suited than himself to lead the movement. An early candidate in his mind had been his close friend and collaborator William Rooney, who died young, taken by typhoid. Griffith thought too that William Bulfin might return from Argentina to lead Sinn Féin, but death soon took Bulfin too. And Griffith yielded gracefully to de Valera when the young bloods of the Sinn Féin and Republican movement after 1916 wanted de Valera to take over its leadership. When de Valera later went to America for most of the War of Independence, Griffith took his place by becoming acting president of Doyle Aaron, a very stressful role then. And he later accepted the role as chief negotiator in London when de Valera himself refused to go telling the Doyle in April 1922 that when he had agreed the previous October with de Valera to lead a delegation to negotiate the treaty, de Valera had said to him, there may have to be scapegoats. And he had replied to de Valera that he was willing to be a scapegoat to save him from some of his present supporters' criticism. There is not time here to discuss all the ways in which the complex and hard-working Griffith repays closer attention than he has received. I deal with them in my recent book, The Enigma of Arthur Griffith, Father of a Soul. They include his tempestuous relationship with Maud Gaughan, one that may not have become sexual in the way that Yeats's with her appears to have briefly done, but one which fired up his battle against the Boer War and introduced Griffith to a range of people whom he might not otherwise have met. There was his disapproval of Singh's Playboy of the Western World, a disapproval not at all based on prudery, as sometimes thought, but on his fear of stage Irishry and the impact of stereotypes on the nationalist struggle. He was also sceptical about the direction which the Abbey Theatre moved creatively as it sought international approval. There was Griffith's relationship with James Joyce, for whom Griffith published a letter that no other editor would publish in full, and from whom Joyce received advice for which he was grateful. Scholars now recognise the influence of Griffith's weekly papers on Joyce's body of work. There was Griffith's friendship with James Connolly, despite their different perspectives, and Griffith's dislike of Jim Larkin, whom he saw as something of a showman. There was Griffith's role in giving a platform to women writers in his papers, which has recently been recognised. And so on. In my book about him, there's much food for thought about a man who has been eclipsed during the present commemoration of events of 100 years ago, events now increasingly known as the Irish Revolution. He's eclipsed, I suggest, because he's too radical for Fine Gael in respect to socio-economic injustice, too nuanced for Fianna Fáil in respect to cultural affairs, and too realistic for today's Sinn Féin in respect to Irish identity in general and the unionist aspect of Irish identity in particular. Some of those who survived his sudden death in 1922 and their followers insinuated that they could have achieved far more than he and Collins and other plenipotentiaries in London in 1921 did. They were indeed, as I have said, sent as plenipotentiaries, a word that means literally someone with full powers, even if some members of the cabinet wanted them hidebound by ministerial instructions thereafter. 
The Cabinet included members who refused to participate in the talks in London, even as they acknowledged that someone had to do so. For there was no realistic chance then of renewed hostilities driving the British out of Ireland, and already the Parliament of Northern Ireland was up and running. Partition was already a reality. Detractors were to claim that Griffith let down the Irish side by allegedly secretly assuring the British Prime Minister Lloyd George in mid-November that Ireland would accept a Northern Ireland state, provided that a boundary commission to redraw the border would be set up. That claim was false. It was fuelled partly by the disingenuous behaviour of Prime Minister Lloyd George himself. On the 9th of November 1921, Griffith and his colleague Eamon Duggan, another of the plenipotentiaries, met with the UK Cabinet Secretary, Thomas Jones. Between that date, the 9th of November, and the 12th of November, Griffith again met Jones, and on the 12th of November itself he met Prime Minister Lloyd George for lunch at the house of Philip Sassoon. The meetings were reported by Griffith to de Valera in the week that they happened. The British explained to Griffith what was purported to be the UK government's strategy, namely to press hard in a letter about to be sent to the Unionists, for the Unionists to accept some kind of an all-Ireland formula within which the six counties would have clear protections. They claimed that this could help to persuade the Unionists. If Lloyd George included in the letter an additional suggestion that would make the Unionists look very unreasonable were they to reject the central proposal of an All-Ireland state with internal partition of some kind. The additional suggestion to the Unionists in this context was that of a boundary commission, which would, if they remained within the UK, readjust the border of Northern Ireland on the basis of Irish people's wishes. On the evening of the 9th of November, after Griffith and Duggan had met Jones that day, Griffith wrote to de Valera to report that Jones had said that Lloyd George was proposing that a, quote, Parliament for the 26 counties should be set up with such powers as were agreed upon between us and that a boundary commission to delimit the six-county area be established so as to give us the districts in which we are a majority, end quote. Now, it should be noted here that Griffith believed that the Boundary Commission under the proposal related to delimiting the six-county area so as to give us the districts in which we are a majority, end quote. He thought it did not include any significant removal of parts of the 26 counties into Northern Ireland. And Michael Collins appears to have understood the proposed Boundary Commission likewise. Lloyd George did not. Griffith in November believed that the Boundary Commission proposal would be unacceptable, in fact, to Unionists and would be rejected. But he saw a clear value in it being put to Unionists because it would put them on the spot in respect to an All-Ireland Parliament, as he told de Valera by letter on that night of the 9th of November. Griffith wrote, He, Lloyd George, asked us would we stand behind such a proposal. We said that it would be their proposal, not ours, and we would not, therefore, be bound by it. But we realised the value as a tactical manoeuvre, and if Lloyd George made it, we wouldn't queer his position. He was satisfied with this. Now, as it happened, that very same day, de Valera wrote to Griffith to express his admiration for the way in which the Irish delegation was conducting matters. 
Griffith again briefed de Valera by letter as soon as he met Lloyd George himself on the afternoon of the 12th of November. That evening Griffith wrote from Hans' place where he was staying. I told Lloyd George it was his proposal, not ours. It was his own proposal. If the Ulster men accepted it, we would have to discuss it with him and the privacy of the treaty conference. I couldn't guarantee its acceptance, as of course my colleagues knew nothing of it yet. But I would guarantee that while he was fighting the Ulster crowd, we wouldn't help them by repudiating him. This satisfied him. They're to send this letter on Monday. But Griffith subsequently discovered that the letter that Lloyd George actually sent Craig on the 14th of November did not include the passages quoted above, about which he'd agreed to stay quiet for a week. Griffith immediately briefed de Valera about this change. Any suggestion that Griffith had then somehow given Lloyd George a secret assurance of some kind on the Boundary Commission is absolutely not supported by evidence and is contrary to the facts as outlined immediately to de Valera and also contrary to the general conduct of the negotiations by Griffith. Yet a statement said to have been made by Lloyd George himself in the negotiations when on Monday the 5th of December 1921 he made his final push to get the Irish to agree to a treaty caused confusion about this. The negotiations had been intense from their outset in early October 1921. Everyone knew that Ireland could not achieve in the talks what armed force had already failed to achieve, namely a simple republic of 32 counties with a single parliament in Dublin. But it was still hoped by many that Ulster Unionists, and Griffith was one of those who hoped so, that Ulster Unionists might be cajoled or engineered into some kind of an all-Ireland arrangement that included a subsidiary parliament with devolved powers for part of Ulster, as well perhaps as extra and disproportionate representation in an Irish Senate of some kind for Unionists. However, Unionists were making clear their fierce opposition to being excluded, to being kept out of the United Kingdom to being forced into an all-Ireland dominion of some kind. And the British government itself that November 1921 was under strong pressure from British opposition politicians to reassure the Unionists and not to give too much to the Irish Republicans. If the British coalition government of Lloyd George collapsed under the strain of the treaty negotiations, then it was likely that a more hard-line administration would replace it and the Anglo-Irish talks themselves could collapse amid renewed hostilities. The 3,000 Irish political prisoners would stay in jail. Collins, Griffith and the treaty negotiators themselves might be arrested immediately, and the British army would be free to concentrate its forces in Ireland, as it had not been during and immediately after the First World War between 1914 and 1918. The Irish delegates had been in London nearly two months by the time that they signed the treaty. If Collins had reason to grow worried about Griffith's health, it cannot have helped that on the weekend before the final talks, the plenipotentiaries were put under immense pressure by having to rush back to Dublin by train and boat to consult with de Valera and to deal with hardline ministers Cahill Brewer and Austin Stack, who were hostile to the talks and who were unlikely to approve any settlement. 
At a time when politicians didn't fly as a matter of course, that journey alone usually took some 11 hours just in one direction. And the Irish Sea could be rough in winter. A boat on which some of the delegates sailed that weekend was to be involved in a fatal collision with another vessel. One graphic indication of the tension already surrounding the peace negotiations was that the provisional rebel government in Dublin had sanctioned the purchase of a small aircraft capable of carrying five passengers from London to Dublin in an emergency, although such a flight would be fraught. The IRA arranged quietly to have this plane ready on standby in England to evacuate Griffith and the four other delegates quickly in the event of negotiations collapsing acrimoniously. It was intended to land on Leopardstown Racecourse when it got to Ireland. Griffith and the others left London on the Friday before the treaty was finally concluded. Having left London on the Friday, Griffith was back in a room in Downing Street with Lloyd George on Sunday. The treaty agreement was signed less than 48 hours later, in the early hours of the 6th of December 1921. The story of that weekend is a remarkable one, and I'll conclude with it. During the afternoon of Thursday the 1st of December, the Irish delegates had received an outline of the UK government's latest proposals. It was reported that one delegate, Robert Barton, left immediately for Dublin. But the others remained in London, where there was an air of crisis and feverish ministerial consultations were noted. They lasted until a late hour in Downing Street. That evening, Lloyd George summoned the Irish to Downing Street and presented them with full details of a revised set of proposals, which, if not quite amounting to an ultimatum, were seen as approaching a final British position. The proposals, backed by a British threat of outright war in Ireland, were to become the basis for a treaty that, when amended in certain ways and signed on the 6th of December 1921, would end military hostilities and yield a significant degree of economic and political independence to most of Ireland. But the treaty would also set in concrete the political division of Ireland, with the six counties in the north remaining part of the United Kingdom, and the 26 other counties constituting the new Irish Free State, which from 1949, of course, became known as the Republic of Ireland. Moreover, that free state would still be linked to the British crown in a manner that was symbolically contentious. To make the terms of the treaty more palatable, the British notably promised also to establish the Boundary Commission, but one now capable of cutting both ways, or, in the words of the treaty, one that could be directed to adjust the line of the new border both by inclusion and exclusion, so as to make the boundary conform as closely as possible to the wishes of the population. The Irish Republican delegates in London hoped that such envisaged adjustments would make a separated Northern Ireland unsustainable, with Griffith having told the British Cabinet Secretary Thomas Jones that it would have to be not for Tyrone and for Manor only, but for all of the six counties. Jones noted his own reply. I said that was enough for me. But as we know now, adjustments to the new frontier were never in fact to be made. The Irish border has remained problematic to this day, 
not least in the context of continuing close economic and cultural connections across that frontier, and also now given the United Kingdom's decision to exit the European Union. In 2016, in a UK referendum, a majority of voters in Northern Ireland, as in Scotland, rejected that proposal to leave the EU. The meeting of Irish and British negotiators that discussed the draft treaty in Downing Street on the evening of Thursday the 1st of December 1921 was described as most exacting. The Irish Times reported that between 6.30 and midnight the tension was at its highest and it constitutes the most strenuous period of any during the negotiations. Proposals were being carefully considered clause by clause with various amendments being made. One newspaper remarked that the examination of the proposals was a sharp battle of wits between Mr Griffith and Mr Lloyd George. Finally, an agreed draft document emerged about 1.30am on Friday morning. So having been awake well into the early hours of the morning of Friday the 2nd of December, embroiled in tough talks and under threat of imminent military hostilities from the British, Irish negotiators now felt obliged to rush back overland and oversea to Ireland. This was in order to consult their colleagues in Dublin and then immediately return to London. This required a journey of 22 to 24 hours travel, 11 in each direction, as well as a difficult cabinet meeting in Dublin that would include not only de Valera but also two hostile cabinet colleagues, Austin Stack and Cahal Brua. So Arthur Griffith and Eamon Duggan caught that same day's morning train from Houston Station to Holyhead. That's on the Friday morning. After Griffith had eaten his breakfast on board the train, he returned to his seat in another carriage, leaving behind his old attaché case on the luggage rack in the dining car, in which was the negotiated text of the proposed treaty. The case wasn't even locked. His forgetfulness was perhaps a symptom of the pressures he was under. Fortunately for him and the Irish delegates, a senior civil servant and not one of the many journalists travelling on board the train recognised the attaché case and ensured that a relieved Griffith recovered it before leaving the train at Hollyhead. Meanwhile, Collins was having a further meeting in Downing Street, where about seven o'clock that Friday evening he liberated a sheet of its headed notepaper on which to scribble a love letter to Kitty Kiernan while the delegation secretaries agreed final details of some report. He had told her on the 30th of November that his maxim was, it's better to wear out than to rust out. But at this point he confided to Kitty, I've had a most awful day, conferring all the time, and I'm preparing to clear off now for Euston Station, to catch the night mail to Hollyhead. Griffith, ahead of him, disembarked in Ireland on the evening of Friday the 2nd of December, but then stayed up to meet de Valera at 11 o'clock that night. The latter had, somewhat resentfully it has to be said, been driven back to Dublin from the west of Ireland where he was touring groups of rebel volunteers to bolster their morale, warning them of the dangers of consuming excess alcohol and advising them that they might have to resume the war of independence if peace negotiations failed. Many of those whom he addressed were recruits who had never fired a shot in anger. By the time that Griffith and de Valera met that night, 
Michael Collins, George Gavin Duffy and Erskine Childers had also left London, intending to make it back on the overnight mailboat with just a few hours to spare before the Cabinet meeting on Saturday morning. Now this was already a tight schedule, and it became even tighter when their boat hit and sank a schooner. Their boat, the Cambria mailboat, was on its maiden voyage, carrying with Collins and Duggan 272 other passengers in many bags of mail. It left Hollyhead at 3.12am and was at full speed just off the coast of North Wales when at 3.28am it rammed and cut in two the James Tyrrell from Arklow, as if it were a piece of cheese, according to one account. Three of the schooner's crew died. Michael Collins reportedly helped to lower the Cambria's lifeboats and offered the delegate's stateroom on board to those who were rescued. He is said to have refused a life belt, reportedly remarking with a smile that I'd been in tighter corners than this and got out of them. The Cambria mailboat cruised about the area for over an hour before then returning to Hollyhead around 6am. Its passengers were subsequently transferred to the Hibernia, which left for Ireland at 7.50am and arrived at 10.31am. This meant that Collins and Gavin Duffy had to go straight from the boat to the cabinet meeting due to start at 11 o'clock at Dublin's mansion house. They made such good haste to Dublin that they arrived in time for it. But there was no opportunity for all the peace negotiators back from London to meet beforehand for a considered discussion on on their strategy. According to the publicity department of Doyle Air and the Irish Cabinet meeting in Dublin on that Saturday, the 3rd of December, lasted from 11am until 7pm with a break for lunch. Certain members of the delegation to London who were not members of the Cabinet attended part of the meeting. Those present discussed possible amendments to the proposed text of the treaty. Strains between some of the delegates in London had been exacerbated by Griffith and Collins dealing directly with British representatives in the absence of other delegates on a number of occasions, as indeed de Valera had dealt with Lloyd George alone when he was in London in July. It was in this context of the Cabinet meeting that the hardline Minister for Defence, Cahal Brua, delivered a cutting insult to Griffith and Collins, claiming that the British government had selected its men. Griffith appears to have reassured de Valera that there would be no further significant concessions without the matter being first referred back to Dublin, although he and others also invited de Valera himself to go to London if he wished, which de Valera still would not do. A well-informed British Cabinet Secretary in his diary for that day noted confused and inconclusive discussion in Irish Cabinet. Sir Horace Plunkett had called on Erskine Childers and his wife during the day, noting he, Erskine, who arrived this morning and goes back to London tonight, looked very tired. Childers, of course, was not one of the plenipotentiaries, but he was a backup man. Within 12 hours of the fraud cabinet meeting ending in Dublin on Saturday, Griffith had taken de Valera's various proposals and crossed overnight, arriving back in London on Sunday morning. The fact that he and Collins and Duggan travelled by one boat while Barton, Gavin Duffy and Childers boarded another vessel may have reflected emerging divisions in their ranks. De Valera, meanwhile, now went back to the west of Ireland and resumed his tour of IRA volunteers, a decision that David McCullough in his recent biography of Dev finds inexplicable. 
because it put the president of the cabinet even further out of contact with developments at Downing Street at a crucial time. At 5pm on the afternoon of Sunday the 4th of December, Griffith, Barton and Gavin Duffy arrived again in Downing Street, facing Prime Minister Lloyd George and other senior British ministers in a very difficult session. Reporters commented on the absence of Michael Collins, although he was believed to be in London. Collins himself explained his absence in a memo as being, for the reason that I had in my own estimation, argued fully all points. But the British Cabinet Secretary thought that it was because Collins was bluntly fed up with the muddle. Collins was certainly fed up with London then, writing on that same day from Cadogan Gardens to his girlfriend Kitty Kiernan that I dislike this place intensely on a Sunday. Everything's so quiet and still and so drearily dull. The outlook now is not inviting through smoky, grimy windows to a drab square. Very, very unpleasant indeed. Different from our own places. But then there's a job to be done and for the moment, here's the place and that's that, concluded Collins. The meeting of British and Irish delegates on that Sunday lasted for about an hour, with Griffith reading out the proposals suggested by de Valera at the previous day's cabinet meeting in Dublin, and Lloyd George retorting that these were a complete going back upon the discussions of the last week. At the nub of British concerns was the Irish reluctance to be associated formally within the British Empire, rather than having a looser kind of external association with the British Commonwealth under its figurehead of the Crown, as the Irish preferred. Griffith at the outset in October had neatly expressed an underlying distinction between Ireland and certain imperial territories that might be satisfied with achieving dominion status only. He had said then that we do not feel ourselves to be a colony but a nation. Griffith now reported to de Valera that the British had threatened to inform James Craig, the leader of the Ulster Unionists, on the following day that the negotiations were broken down. The Sunday meeting then ended, and we parted, said Griffith. Newspaper reports next morning suggested that expectations of an agreement were low. A correspondent in London for the Freeman's Journal reported that journalists who have been accustomed to visit Downing Street almost daily for years past informed me that they never remember seeing so much depression within the portals of number 10 as prevailed last night. And Griffith was so worried that he had taken the extraordinary step of holding a midnight meeting with Thomas Jones, British Cabinet Secretary, who wrote in his diary at 1.30am on the Monday morning after his meeting with Griffith ended that I saw Arthur Griffith at midnight for an hour alone. He was labouring under a deep sense of the crisis and spoke throughout with the greatest earnestness and unusual emotion. One was bound to feel that to break with him would be infinitely tragic. Griffith appears to have described the meeting to Jones as our first attempt at secret diplomacy. He tried to impress upon Jones the need for further concessions if a civil war among nationalists was to be avoided. Jones agreed to a request from Griffith that Lloyd George meet Michael Collins on that Monday morning to have a heart-to-heart with him. And so Griffith went over at 1am to hunt out Collins to fix this up. What was Griffith feeling as he went over to Collins at Chelsea that night? 
For two months negotiations had dragged on, all the time on solid English home turf that was well within the social and political comfort zones of British ministers, but far from the domestic circumstances of Irish delegates who had just emerged from the stress of a guerrilla war and internment. Although members of their families might visit the Irish delegates in their high-class lodgings at 22 Hands Place and 15 Cadogan Gardens, the Irish cannot have found their extended stay in London anything but difficult. They had even agreed to decline certain offers of English hospitality, lest it be thought to compromise them. Collins in England and Kitty Kiernan in Ireland exchanged daily love letters that reflected the pressures under which he laboured. He told her on one occasion, it's so lonely and so sad being far away. And he did prevail on her to visit him in late October. During November, Griffith had written at least twice to his wife, Maud or Molly, pleading with her to make arrangements for minding their children and to come over, which she eventually did for the final negotiations in December. Existing political and personal strains between members of the Irish delegation were exacerbated by the extended and fraught nature of negotiations, with Erskine Childers in particular being withdrawn, if punctilious. De Valera's absence and lack of clarity about ultimate terms of agreement made matters worse. Ultimately, the route by which the Irish delegates came to agree to sign the draft treaty on the 6th of December 1921 is probably not as important as the fact that they did so having decided that it was as acceptable a document as they were likely to get. Their job had been a very hard one, stuck in London for two months on the home turf of the most powerful government ministers in the world, and compelled to make a series of tiring return journeys by rail and sea back to Dublin to consult with de Valera and their resentful cabinet colleagues, making one such round trip as we've seen even on the weekend before they signed the agreement. Charged with doing a deal, they did it, and the burden fell mainly on the leader of the delegation, Arthur Griffin. The strain probably contributed to his collapse and death in August 1922. But by then, the Cabinet had voted by a majority for the deal, as had a majority of the Doyle, and a majority of the electorate had subsequently, in an election, backed those who supported the decision of Griffith and the other plenipotentiaries. No subsequent Doyle ever revoked the treaty. The Irish state is a monument to the work of Arthur Griffith and he deserves honour this year and next when we commemorate its foundation. Thank you. So, there we have it. A brilliant podcast from Colm Kenny. As discussed at the beginning of this episode, Arthur Griffith was a hugely influential character in the formation of the modern Ireland in which we live. So it is somewhat interesting that he is one of the lesser known or written about people of the revolutionary period. Indeed, this is probably the true enigma of Arthur Griffith rather than the man himself. Colm has done a fantastic job in bring, bringing together a huge amount of research and creating a better understanding of Griffith himself. We would like to thank him for his time and in recording this podcast and I would urge anyone who has enjoyed what they have just heard um, to buy the book also there's a huge amount more information in the book as well 
Uh, I would also like to thank you for listening and I hope you will join us on the next episode of the Michael Collins House podcast. Our museum may be back open, but that doesn't mean our podcast will be going anywhere. We have a busy schedule of episodes lined up for the rest of 2021 and we hope to continue the podcast for a long time to come. So thanks again for listening and goodbye.